Dear friends, good evening or whatever time zone you are in. <laughs> uh, we're here in London in the midst of a lockdown, therefore we have no audience today. Uh, but we're very grateful to Gresham College and to LSO St. Luke's for letting us do this uh, at this time because it's very important for us just to, to keep our uh, positive emotions going by working and doing what we love. So thank you very much for tuning in. We're going to talk about Rachmaninoff today uh, and Peter Donahoe is going to play some of the pieces. And of course, Peter, uh, I associate you with Rachmaninoff very much because um, you played the third piano concerto at the competition in 1982. Mm. <laughs> it's a long time ago now, but yes, yes, I've, been, I've played this a lot since as well. How many times <laughs> did you play? Since? I think it's nearly 200. 200. Uh, something like 189 or so, something like yeah. that. And that's the third concerto, but, but I actually haven't done it for a couple of years. So I've been turning my, um, my attention to quite a lot of other things recently, uh, very different repertoire. Uh, so I've tended to, to sort of slightly put that on the shelf for now, that concerto, because it is so difficult. Uh, and 189 times is probably enough for most people. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I'll come back to it eventually because it's one of the greatest works for piano and orchestra ever written. So I, I, I actually miss it. Two, in two minds, you know. So, well, today we're going to, to focus on Rachmaninoff, and when you speak about Rachmaninoff, it's usually, we, we feel that we have to defend him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, defend him from his critics. I put some uh, outrageous mm. criticisms on, on the screen for you. Mm. So, one that is usually quoted is by Eric Blom from Grove Dictionary, uh, of all things, 1954. Yeah, so that's like a music encyclopedia. Artificial and gushing tunes accompanied by a variety of figures derived from arpeggios. The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded it with much favor. <laughs> yeah, so 1954, very typical of uh, you know, English and American attitudes, I think, at that time. Yes, I'm very sorry. <laughs> and indeed, some musicians uh, concur, uh, like Alfred Brendel. Rachmaninoff, to me, seems a waste of time. Uh, American critic, uh, in all the music of uh, Monsieur Rachmaninoff, there is something strangely twice told. From it, uh, uh, there flows a sadness distilled by all things that are a little useless. This work, and that's the fourth piano concerto, would fittingly be described as super salon music. Madame Cécile Chaminade might safely have perpetrated it on her third glass of vodka. Yeah, so this is how you can be both misogynist and rosophobic in one sentence. <laughs> and uh, about the rhapsody, the Paganini rhapsody, the rhapsody isn't philosophical, significant, or even artistic. It is something for audiences. Yeah, and that is the problem with Rachmaninoff. Because he is popular, he is not considered to be serious. And this is a famous exchange with Olin Downs, when Olin Downs asked him this provocative question, do you believe that a composer can have real genius, sincerity, profundity of feeling, and at the same time be popular? And Rachmaninoff said, yes, I believe it is possible to be very serious, to have something to say, and at the same time to be popular. I believe that. I believe that. Others do not. They well, think, they they money, think what you think, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Yes. Well, I, I don't understand any of those comments at all. I'm trying to analyse what they mean. It doesn't, doesn't really register with me at all. Apart from anything else, Rachmaninoff's popularity is not based on everything that he wrote. And he wrote, in fact, it's not really based on very many pieces at all. Um, and he wrote a lot of music and very different in mood and style and for different mediums and, and all kinds of, of diverse um, sort of attitudes to music and, and that's the most deeply felt music that there is and actually possibly it's true that the, the piano concertos which are particularly number two the most popular works he wrote um, perhaps they are less so than, than his much um, less, uh, less frequently played works there's something very immediately appealing, particularly, obviously, number two, which is probably, statistically, the most frequently played piano concerto that's ever been written, particularly nowadays, for, for a reason I'm not quite sure of, but it's, it's just completely dominated the whole piano concerto repertoire for a very long time. 
Well, I think popularity is just one reason. The other reason is probably that he was seen as old-fashioned at the time. Yeah, that was the time he lived up to 1943. So, you know, starting from about 1910, I think people started writing music that was much more dissonant and uh, also had this um, different aesthetics, yeah, which, which people described as dehumanized aesthetics, taking the human subject out of music. Yes, it's a very famous essay written on dehumanization uh, of art uh, yeah, mm. by, by the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset. And even before that, uh, one of uh, Rachmaninoff's great fans and friends, Marietta Chaguignan, noted this. Uh, she wrote her essay about Rachmaninoff in 1912, and she was already talking, comparing his music with Scriabin, for example, which strived for something that was superhuman. Yes, so superhuman. And this is what she said. No, I'm not with you. I want to be human. I don't want to lose the human element. This is what Rachmaninoff's music stubbornly tells us again and again, resisting the chaotic world that rages around it. Yeah, so it was all uh, already there in 1912. Yeah, she felt that he, he was doing something else. And he didn't change his aesthetic uh, to the end of his life. And of course, you know, getting this terrible criticism for basically every piece that he wrote, especially the late pieces, was quite disheartening for him. And nevertheless, you know, he stayed with it within his style. And it's, uh, it's quite interesting to think about this now because to say now, yeah, that Schoenberg is dearer to us than Rachmaninoff, yeah, we probably wouldn't. I mean, you've... No, he probably never was. I mean, Schoenberg, Shostakovich, Messiaen, Bartok, Stravinsky, many, many others were contemporaries of, of Rachmaninoff. And, and he, he was regarded as someone who lacked self-confidence, which I'm sure he did, but he didn't lack the courage to, to stay with his own style, did he? He didn't lack the courage to write tonally, and to be, at the same time, extremely original. I think the criticisms were just totally unwarranted. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if Alfred Brendel's watching this, actually. It'd be very interesting to know. <laughs> um, and I would like very much to discuss it with him, because he's obviously got an opinion that's based on something other than those words. So I'd be very intrigued to know. Um, th there is something unbelievably great about Rachmaninoff. Not even in the context of when he wrote, but at any time. Uh, and, and the ability to remain tonal, to remain faithful to his own ideas, and to still be extremely original, well out of his own era, in a way. And also, by the way, it must have a huge influence on him that he was a great performer. He was a fantastic conductor, and maybe even a greater pianist, uh, one of the, the great pianists of all time. And well, you can hear that on record. This is, brings us to the next chapter, which yeah. is about his hands, yeah, which has been fetishized by people. Almost every memoir starts with that, you know, yeah. how they come backstage and shake his hand and the hand just disappears yes. yeah, in his, in his huge, huge hand. So I've got a picture of them here. They've, they've been described in, in, in ridiculous detail, you know, what, what his fingertips look like and so on. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the, there was even uh, a suggestion that he had a particular syndrome. Yeah, it's called Marfan syndrome, mm. uh, which means that why he was so tall, yeah, his fingers so, so incredibly long, and also the, um, the joints were loose. Yeah, so he could stretch quite mm. amazing. Unbelievable cords. stretch, yeah. yes. But I think uh, there are quite a lot of people with very large hands, but not with very slim fingers at the same time. And that's what made him, made him unique. And you can feel it in everything that he wrote. However simple it actually sounds, however slow, however lyrical, there is this constant reminder that it's written for a much larger hand than the one you've got yourself. Uh, and so we have to slightly adapt quite often the, the, uh, yes, the way that it's written. I, I was hoping to, to, to try some, to find some evidence that the pianos that he played on were smaller. But it's not actually true. <laughs> I'm afraid not. <laughs> yes, from, from about 1870s, yeah, we have the modern uh, widths. Although, interestingly, uh, uh, Josef Hoffmann, yeah, who was actually Rachmaninoff's favorite pianist and his main rival at the time, um, he had a smaller piano made mm. for him, which was 7-8. Yeah, so he mm. was very, very slender, very slight, you know, had, mm. had very small hands. Mm. So he actually used a smaller keyboard. So I'm sure he could have probably played some of Rachmaninoff's things.
things. Oh, we played but, them wonderfully. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm just very interested in what you just said. That, that huh? It was slightly in passing, but that um, Joseph Hoffman was his favourite pianist and he was a rival. I think that says quite a lot about Rachmaninoff as a character. He was incredibly um, uh, respectful of other musicians. Uh, I, th I think probably most composers in the end are. Most. I wouldn't say all, but certainly most. And he was one of the most respectful of all because he knew how to perform. He knew what the problems were. He knew what, what he was up against. Uh, and it's a very interesting subject to me, recording and performing your own music, which he did quite a lot of. Um, and the fact that he sounds, he sounds like a, a different performer when he's playing music by other composers. And actually, m my own personal preference is for the latter because he plays it with much more uh, confidence, I suppose, in a way. Um, to, to actually copy Rachmaninoff's own performances is probably a mistake, and it makes me wonder whether it's actually a bad thing that, we, that he was in the recording era, and we have recordings of him playing. Um, but that's only because I think it's very dangerous to actually imitate, to imitate anyone, actually. He certainly wouldn't want us to imitate his performances, and Rachmaninoff's um, adoration of other pianists playing his music, including Horowitz and Hoffman in particular, and many others, is, is just so, it's, so it's actually very humbling. Yeah, but well, coming back to the, the, the big chords, yeah, I, I put one here. I don't know how <laughs> anyone can play this. Yeah, this is from the D flat major prelude, which is the last one. Yes. Uh, well, I've played that a lot. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I don't play exactly what he's written. It's as simple as that. No. Um, because you just can't do it. Unless you spread them, which would be the wrong character. Yeah. And you can't do it. It's too short to spread, really, isn't mm. it? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I can't possibly uh, give away what I leave out, but I do leave <laughs> something out. And the end of this prelude, which is the final one of his 24, is very obviously a finale of the whole cycle, and, and written with that in mind. Um, and it's, uh, it, it always reminds me of the end of Das Rheingold, actually, which is in the same key as it happens. Um, and I wonder if there is any reason why it should be so, mm -hmm. so much like that. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know Rachmaninoff was very influenced by Wagner. Mm -hmm. um, but can I play this and just, yeah. just uh, show you, sort of show you what I do? <laughs> notes there to be going along well we don't actually have to do that it sounds the same you know so I, I, in fact by the way I've just been listening to a performance of a wonderful pianist whom I won't name of some Schubert where he and Schubert writes sometimes rather uh, unpianistic moments where you need a big hand to stretch it then it's quite obvious that Schubert didn't really realize that it was so difficult partly because the piano keyboard was smaller at that time anyway and this, this particularly great pianist just simply alters the octave that one of the notes is in. So, you know, it's not just Rachmaninoff we have to do it with. There are quite a few, um, actually. Trade secret. Right. Well, Rachmaninoff actually claimed that he writes uh, indigenous music for the piano. That is, music which the Germans would describe as clavier messy. Yeah, there's no, no good uh, English word, I guess, he could find. Pianistic, yeah, so specifically pianistic. Mm. Uh, and he says, he names various people. He says that Brahms is a non-pianistic composer and Rimsky-Korsakov's concerto nobody will play because it's, uh, it's not pianistic. And he says that even his own uh, second piano concerto is not as pianistic as the third. Would no, you I think agree that's with true. That? Mm. Yeah? Yes, I would. Yes, the, the third has a continuous sense of difficulty from beginning to end. But the second has some, ex well, generally not so difficult, but it has some extraordinarily awkward moments mm -hmm. that don't even sound difficult. Um, and it, it really is a product of someone who didn't find it difficult himself, I think. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's like he didn't realise it was tricky. Uh, because the most important aspect of Rachmaninoff's music is the soul, is the wonderful, emotional, uh, sometimes very conflicting emotions and, and the, de the slightly depressive character of the composer and of the country that he comes from. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but it, 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 it is su it's such Russian music, much more than Tchaikovsky. 
although Tchaikovsky was very obviously very, very uh, in love with his own country, but he was also determined to be a European. Whereas Rachmaninoff remained Russian, very much so. Well, we're just going to discuss this now. I'm sorry to keep preempting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my next chapter is called The Bells. And we're going to talk about not just the bells, but generally the Russianness of Rachmaninoff's music, which I think mainly uh, comes from three things. They're all connected with the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah, and one is this kind of chant-like melodies. Mm. Uh, some of them, uh, I mean, it goes so deep, I think, in, 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 into his veins that he doesn't notice when mm. he sort of imitates chant because he says he wasn't aware of it when he wrote the third piano concerto, mm. that it was actually so close. Yeah, and you can see uh, that these melodies, they have, they, they're all stepwise, yeah, so they go step by step up and down and they sometimes turn on themselves, yeah, mm. they, they have mm. these, these passages. So all of them, and then you have in the preludes, yeah, something very similar to that. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's quoting something. It's just, you no. know, really went very, very deep into, into mm. his, his um, idiom, I suppose. And mm. he, he did actually, you know, take uh, the, uh, the trouble to go to, to, to liturgies and services to enjoy the, this experience. So it was something mm. very important to him, although no, I don't think he was a kind of conventional religious person at all. Now, may I play those? Two, at least yes, I don't yes. know the first one actually, but well, I do. Well, this know. is just a chant, uh, okay. which uh, the actual chant, which he harmonizes in his uh, all-night vigil. Yes. Yeah. Well, well this is the opening yeah. of the third yeah. piano concerto. Having just said it's one of the most difficult pieces ever written, this, of course, is notoriously <laughs> as simple sounding as possible. Although it's not as simple as it as it actually sounds. But yes, long after it became immensely popular, um, somebody told Rachmaninoff that it was related to this mm. chant. I think he was on a train at the time or something, and he didn't realise. He was quite surprprised. Mm. Which is, and, and let's do the other one, which is a much earlier piece, of course, one of the preludes. Beautiful melodic lines that that no other composer, uh, as far as I'm aware, really sounds like mm -hmm. at all. You can immediately detect Rachmaninoff. That is the sign of a great composer. Yeah, so, so what I was trying to say is that it doesn't have to be like a churchy piece, yeah, no, or no, a piece no. with religious sentiment. It's just really almost every melody is somehow connected to that yeah. principle. And another thing is the, is the voice leading, which, uh, which is connected uh, to the practices of Russian Orthodox Church. And even in pieces that, again, have nothing uh, to do with it, like this, this prelude in B major, doesn't really yeah. have any, anything churchy in the character. No. But I really hear this principle of the top voice moving uh, by step, but the bass yeah, moving uh, by a large interval, you know, just uh, sort of mm. from a tried to a tried, like it would have in, in the church choir. And I'm sort of giving here an example uh, of a very standard, ordinary harmonization uh, of a chant. <laughs> immediately conjures it yeah. up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's... And yeah. the way it revolves around the same mm -hmm. area of notes as well. That actually reminds me also of Stravinsky very much. Mm. The way that... That's, because Stravinsky also was very influenced by the Russian Orthodox Church, of mm -hmm. course. And the way that it all, like that. All around the same area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> which is The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. <laughs> there is a very definite link. And of course, the third is the bells. Yeah, and everyone knows about the bells because really they're almost in every piece. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I chosen this, this this little thing that you play with with Martin Roscoe here uh, mm. to show um, the uh, the piece that Rachmaninoff himself identified as being influenced by the bells of a particular monastery. Yeah, mm. so I think that is interesting that, that we know for sure. Yeah, that mm. that's where it comes from. Mm. 
added. Yeah, so like the whole texture seems to be coming from yeah, from these bells. So. Yeah, and and uh, this is uh, another number from the same suite. Yeah, the first uh, two piano suite, and that actually is called Easter. So this we know what this is about, and it's a very different type of bell ringing. <laughs> and the little ones. It's incredibly evocative. Amazingly so. Yeah, well, Could I, I play the most obvious, um, actually the most famous, a reference to Bells of All? Mm. so wonderful so we the, the most famous opening of any concerto virtually isn't it mm. and and so again evocative yeah extraordinarily evocative just w wanted to actually play the, the easter bell ringing mm. uh, which reminds you of one of the preludes that you're going to play later which is the b flat major one which i mm. also think has this this triumphant easter bells in it <laughs> well, of course, uh, the, those bells that you played from the second piano concerto sort of come from the end of the very famous prelude, because at mm. first there weren't 24 preludes. Yeah, there was just one prelude, which he wrote very early on as part of his Opus 3. And it became, um, <laughs> it became rather uh, a sort of mixed... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it, it, it gave him his international success uh, because uh, it was actually his cousin Zelotti, who was a, uh, Alexander Zelotti, who was a wonderful pianist, a, a, a pupil of Liszt, who presented this 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 prelude. Mm. Um, I think both in in the uh, in in Britain and in America. And after that, everyone just couldn't get enough of it, and he mm. had to play it in almost. Every concert, yeah. So yes, he, he had to do it as an encore after every concerto, every recital, everything, <laughs> and got fed up with it, of course. Yeah, it's a bit like Ravel, Ravel's Bolero. Right? Mm. I'm, I'm sure that Ravel did not want to be known mm. for just that piece, and it's the, the same kind of... Uh, it, it's like it followed him around on his shoulder, isn't it? Yes, but I, it is an I, amazing like, piece. I like this phrase that he says, you know, I, I feel like a little girl who is just learning to play and there's only one piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, well, yes, so the, the history of that set of preludes, which for me is his greatest piano music, uh, 24 preludes, um, the first one written as a student, I think, mm -hmm. as part of a, a suite of other pieces, and then extended that uh, in Opus 23 um, at a time when he was recovering from his depression, famously uh, using the, 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 uh, the services of a hypnotherapist. Mm -hmm. uh, the most glorious outpouring of melod melodious music so that, then there were 11 altogether, and it was at that point, I think, he decided he would one day complete mm -hmm. the 24 keys. And, and so he wrote over 32, the 13 prelude's over 32, to complete it all. And somehow, it makes the most fantastic feeling of, an, of a, a, a very long single statement, even though he wrote it in such a sporadic way. Uh, and I've played it in recital mm -hmm. like that uh, mm -hmm. several times. The only thing is it takes the whole recital up. There is no room for anything else because they're long pieces, or most of mm -hmm. them are. Uh, and it's very interesting. Do you mind me speaking to for so long? I'm sorry if I'm taking all your time. But um, the 24th, i.e. number 13 of the Opus 32 set, is in D-flat major, which is the relative major, of course, of the famous C-sharp minor. And it brings back those famous three notes. key and it's the most fantastic feeling of triumph which is not totally familiar from Rachmaninoff's music. There is very rarely a feeling of total triumph but there absolutely is in that last prelude um, which we haven't got time to hear because it's a long piece but it's the most fabulous uh, peroration 
of something that he wrote many decades before. Yeah, well, somebody actually uh, uh, made this, uh, you know, put this thesis forward that the whole, you know, all 24 preludes are actually variations on the C-sharp minor prelude because they all have that <laughs> motif that you played and also yeah. the motif, the chromatic motif from the middle section. But mm. I think, you know, musicologists will tell you all, the, yeah. all these things, but I, I think that's going too far, yeah, because it's well, actually yes. such it sums basic... It up his style, actually. Yeah, they're it? such basic things. You, you mm. really can find them in, in yeah. every, every single one of them. But yeah. uh, coming back to the, this, the prelude, you know, once again, uh, I just wanted to show you... Um, how it's laid out, uh, that bell passage <laughs> yeah. at the very end. Yeah, that's Why for one is piano. it laid out on two staves? Mm. Like as if there are two people that need to play it. Yes, mm. why mm. is this? Yes, mm -hmm. we haven't got enough time to hear it all. Yes, but um, and somebody uh, again made, made a joke about that, that the fact that the, la the last two pages being laid out on four staves naturally gives the performer a certain standing in Clapham drawing rooms, which a piece laid out in the usual manner on two staves might fail to do. Um, so, uh, you know, basically saying that this piece is not that difficult, yeah, if you compare it with others. And so a lot of amateurs were able to play it, mm. and uh, it, it gave them sort of this yeah. feeling of grandeur. But it's again, you know, mm. taking <laughs> a shot at Rachmaninoff. Yes, I, I don't understand it. It's so boring of these people to be like that. Yeah. So well, I wanted so to easy to do, isn't it? I wanted to, to, um, uh, to hear uh, Rachmaninoff play a little bit of mm. it. Yeah, so this is a, a very famous... Um, technology that was invented at that time and Pico piano rolls and he actually mm. thought it was good so just a little bit <laughs> of this piece yeah, led to all kinds of spin-offs, so to speak. Uh, one of the most amazing things that happened was a film made about the prelude, which connected it uh, to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's story of the being buried alive. And I think you mentioned this to mm. me, that you've, you've heard of this. Yeah? And uh, yeah. lots of people told me that, like my music teacher told me that's what it is about. Mm. It was my grandfather who told me when I was about Five, I think. <laughs> but there's yeah. this famous piece that sounds like someone being buried alive. It was, it's kind of frightening when you're five, but I, I could see what he meant when I heard yeah, the piece. So this is a, a silent film from 1927, but the prelude was supposed to play, people played during it. Mm. Yeah, so this is how it starts. It's actually yeah, a film based on the prelude. Um, and... Uh, and it says that it's already an accepted theory. I, I haven't found any confirmation that it was connected to Rachmaninoff in any way. But anyway, you can see just a little bit, a few... Um he's sitting with his glass of whiskey and starting to read this, this story and then he falls asleep and sees a dream about buried the light. And then he thankfully wakes up at the end. But anyway, so that's <laughs> just one example you know, of how popular it was. Um, other examples were of course how it went into popular culture and in 1918 there was this uh, Russian rag uh, made out of it. Just 
It's well, yeah, it, it, it suits mm. as well. And uh, mm. there was another arrangement. This is uh, by, um, by Francis Chappie Willett uh, yeah, for, for jazz orchestra, which uses the middle section material as well. <laughs> annoyed by it? Apparently not. No, I'm sure he yeah. wasn't. It would be the musicologists who were annoyed by it, wouldn't it? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yes, he would walk in and it would be played by the jazz orchestra, say mm. Paul Whiteman's orchestra, and he would be mm. delighted and mm. he would congratulate musicians always. Mm. So. I bet they never played any Schoenberg. <laughs> but they didn't. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a great lover of Schoenberg, by the way, just to be sure about that. <laughs> but see, it, I can see why that would not be a big hit with the particular performers we've just listened to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just to remind you how the 24 are constructed, but you already explained this. Yeah, so it's actually three separate uh, lots. Now, the next uh, chapter is going to be about the point. Yeah, the climactic point that is so important for Rachmaninoff's music. And uh, I will start with a story. I'm not going to read all of it out. It's also by Marietta Shaginyan, how once uh, they came backstage after a concert that found Rachmaninoff in very bad mood, sort of tearing his hair out. And, uh, and it was apparently because he missed the point. Yeah, did you notice, did you, didn't you notice that I missed the point? Don't you understand? I let the point slip. So then she explains what it is, how the whole structure hangs on it, and this moment must arrive mm. with the sound and sparkle of a ribbon snapped at the end of a race. Yeah, so mm. it's a, a, a very important thing, apparently, in his, in his music. And uh, um, a friend, my, my friend Jonathan Danborough, a colleague from Oxford, sent me uh, these graphs, uh, which are just the contour of a melody. Yeah, he just, you know, if you can see the piano keyboard is on the left, he has positioned this, and this is how the piece progresses. And you can see these beautiful peaks, yeah, mm. absolutely, sort of f from, from various pieces, mm. how, how, yeah, how, how wonderfully they are kind of all measured out. So uh, at the time, uh, the, a, a lot of critics, um, perceived it as a kind of Wagnerian device. Of course, Tchaikovsky is also very famous for his climax, but mm. Wagner especially, yeah? Mm. And especially Tristan is in the connection with eroticism that uh, this female, by the way, female music critic is describing here. Uh, Rachmaninoff discovered this, I think, for the first time, not even so much in piano music as in songs. And these songs were love songs, and they were sometimes quite explicit for their time. It was they're, they're very much uh, part of their time, because at that time, Russian literature and Russian poetry started discovering eroticism and uh, you know the Kreutzer Sonata for example by Tolstoy yeah was an uh, extremely important piece which was discussed by everyone and uh, women started writing poetry also about their own experiences for the first time and that was viewed you know by some as something not quite done and what does Rachmaninoff do? He sets these, <laughs> these words to music. Yeah, so that's another way for people to disparage him. Oh, he has no taste in poetry, you know, he's, because he's, he, <laughs> he sets to music, you know, these, these terrible verses by, by various women. Uh, but I wanted to, this is actually not a song by a, a, a poem by a woman. I wanted to show you how he does it in the first song where he really uh, does this profile with a huge peak. And for a singer, yeah, it's impossible to miss it. You cannot mm. actually <laughs> slip, yeah, because you have a big note, so you have to do it. <laughs> Uh, 
this point, you know, sometimes uh, arrives quite early in the piece, yeah, and then you have a very, very long descent, and think this, this the descent is probably even more typical of Rachmaninoff's yeah. music, yeah, because nobody quite does it, and mm. and the fact that you have such a long descent, his harmony avoiding the tonic for as long as possible, yeah, you know, creates the sense of nostalgia, doesn't it? And he's wonderful at writing that kind of mm. music with a very long. Um, well, in fact, I was going to say before, I don't want to be facetious at all, but when one's driving down the motorway, one sometimes sees, well, in fact, you very often see a sign that says services, uh, 50 miles or whatever it is, 10 miles, I, don't know, I think it's one mile usually, isn't it? Uh, and then you get another sign that says services, half a mile, and then you get the point at which you can turn off. Well, if you substitute the word climax for services, it feels very much like that. In, for example, the third piano concerto, the second symphony, famously, I think the, the, the second concerto as, as well, but particularly those two pieces, where it's quite obvious that there's something brewing that's major, a very major crisis or climax or something, and you can feel it coming the whole time. It's quite incredible the way he manages it. I think Tchaikovsky does it very well as well. And as you said, Marina, so does Wagner and an absolutely direct influence on, on Rachmaninoff. And I feel it, I, I, I always think of it when I'm playing the, the third piano concerto, I think, climax, one mile, you know, it, and it's very much like that. Um, and the, the, the prelude that I will be playing later, uh, the D major one, which you, you put on the screen a few minutes back, that's absolutely like that. The most fantastic feeling of knowing where it's going to, and then when it arrives, it's falling away again. Yes, I wanted to show you, um, this is slightly naughty, but uh, how, how it's done in the film, how uh, the, 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 in this romantic, you know, when, when Rachmaninoff's music, the second piano concerto, goes into popular culture, in this very fam famous film, Brief Encounter, yeah, how they actually cut that piece um, of music in such a way that the very point coincides with the kiss. I think it's... it's <laughs> <a> <laughs> to ask you something, just to reassure myself. What is it? It is true for you, isn't it? This overwhelming feeling we have for each other, it's as true for you as it is for me, isn't it? Yes, it's true. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to show this, though, um, and this is about letting the point slip, yeah? so. You can see it. this is a prelude in D major that you've just mentioned, yeah, and there is no mistaking where the climax actually is, yeah, there is a big crescendo in bar 50 and a fortissima in bar 51 and then a diminuendo, yeah, Rachmaninoff was a very, very precise about how he actually prepared his scores for publication, so we have no reason to trust this, hmm. uh, to not trust it, hmm. yeah, hmm. but this is the Zelotti edition. And can you see what he does? Yeah, he actually places the climax in, in bar 50. Yeah. And then he gives you a diminuendo to a forte. Mm. Well, he was in the family, you know, families, really. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's completely wrong. I'm sorry, Shilotti, that's this is what Rachmaninoff wanted. And it sounds fabulous like that, and it sounds weak like that. But is that before possi possibly because they were kind of uh, trying to make it more subtle? Yeah, because everyone was complaining mm. that the music wasn't subtle. You know, mm. euphemistically again talking about it in these terms. Maybe. That's it's a very <laughs> nice way of looking at it. I just think that lets it down. Mm. And I've heard many, many things said about the climaxes in, well, generally in Russian composers' music. I've heard something described as the Russian crescendo, which apparently gets quieter. There's one. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's not a Russian crescendo at all, it's just something that weakens the climax. Simple as that. But that's just an opinion, mm -hmm. of which I've probably got too many. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the point, well, let's discuss the counterpoint. <laughs> so, um, what I mean is that even if we take something like a D major prelude, which on the, on the, you know, on, on the surface of it, just has a melody and an accompaniment. In fact, it's something much more complex, and I was trying to sort of put various colors in. So you have the melody, which is actually quite basic. If you could just play it sort of a few notes yeah. from the melody.
have the bass, yeah, which is in green. Which here, shows which... the size of his hand again. <laughs> you have the bass and you have this cloud, yeah, of, of figuration, which is mostly chords. Mm. But then uh, you, even within this figuration, you have little bits of melody that are trying to uh, sort of again, create some counterpoint with the melody. And then when it comes back, the melody here, and you can see how much more complex it becomes. Yeah, so first of all, the melody is now much thicker. It's, it's in, laid out in chords. You still have the bass. You still have that cloud. But now there is, there is much more melodic activity in that figuration. So that's already the fourth thing going on. Mm. And then you have the echo of the melody up very high, yeah, which is a kind of canon. And finally, uh, there are these little notes which echo that top melody. <laughs> and they do not coincide, yeah, they're not sounded at the same time, yeah, because you have duplets up there, yeah, mm. and triplets mm. here. So they so basically you are playing six things at the time. Yeah, you have to hold it on in your head. Yes, you have to try to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and use, use your two hands. <clears throat> it, it reminds me sometimes, you know, of painting some, something like that, that, you know, Rachmaninoff's favorite painter, Levitan, created, where there is something very simple, you know, just birch trees, but the complexity of it is, is mm, extraordinary. Yeah. And uh, one sort of silly thing that I wanted to, to remind you of, that there was this study at the beginning of this year, which uh, said that Rachmaninoff is the most innovative composer in 200 years. <laughs> what they did, they, they fed all you know, music for 200 years into a computer. And uh, they just looked at what sounds together. Yeah, they called it code words. Yeah? So what sounds together, not necessarily a chord, a chord and everything that sounds together. And the chord word transition is uh, yeah, the transition from one of these verticals to another. And as you can guess, Rachmaninoff, who can have all kinds of things yeah, accumulating in this vertical from all these layers, he, he got on top yeah, of this because he, he turned out that they, they, these transitions, they're just huge number of huge variety. Yeah, so of course it's, it's kind of a silly experiment which doesn't really tell us very much, but it's something mm. that it, it gets you somewhere to an understanding of complexity that we maybe don't mm. notice necessarily. I would have preferred it to have said one of the most, but other than that, <laughs> I can go with it. <laughs> yes, Ravel was the other one. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, very quickly, we'll, we'll talk about the gloom because that's another thing that everyone talks about with Rachmaninoff, yeah, how he emigrated. Um, to, uh, to the West, yeah, from Russia, and this nostalgia that really mm. um, defines him uh, as a character. Uh, Rachmaninoff, uh, it seems, did suffer from depression. He des describes it himself uh, as an illness. It was very much connected to his inability to compose and basically his um, inferiority complex as a composer, his lack of uh, confidence that you mm. actually mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, and uh, another thing that I wanted to mention is that usually when he composed, he had to to have very often a poem yeah, or a painting or a piece of literature in mind. And it's very interesting to us because uh, he doesn't usually reveal, yeah, like with the preludes, we basically don't know almost uh, anything about them. But he would reveal it if he was asked. <laughs> this is why, you know, people just didn't ask, you know, Rispighi asked him about the Etude Tableau and he, he revealed a few things that inspired mm. him. But there is a, a, an exception to that, and uh, I will play this, this little uh, interview by Beno Maisevich about the B minor prelude. I said, did you have a program when you composed the B minor prelude? He said, yes, his bass voice. Good, I'm on the first round. I said, I know your, your idea is not mine, but I know that mine is correct. He said, All right, you tell me, you must now tell you mine. And we haggled for a while, eventually. I said, Well, mine is a long story. He said, If yours is a long story, it cannot 
be anything like mine because mine can be answered with one word. So despondently I sat down in the chair and I said, well to me it suggests the return whereupon the long arm shot out. Stop! So I said, why, what have I done? I said, that's what it is. It's the return. It was an exile. And that's what Rahmanov was. So, uh, interestingly, he connects it with the exile, although it's written in 1910, so it's well before yeah, he emigrated. Um, in fact, then, if you listen on, uh, uh, Rachmaninoff tells you that the return is the name of a painting by Arnold Berklin, uh, and it's, it's called The Homecoming, you know, or The Return. And it's a very uh, strange painting, yes, yeah, so it's mysterious. Uh, you can see this... Uh, man in rich clothes of, from the 16th century. He seems to be sort of sitting on the edge of this fountain and, and gesturing towards a brightly lit window. But he doesn't actually go there. Yeah, so mm. something is keeping him from returning. And the title of this painting uh, takes us back to Heinrich Heine, whom Berklin admired, and his cycle, which is called The Homecoming. Mm which is full of images of someone returning into town and, say, finding that his beloved has married someone else. Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's full of this very, very bitter experience of, of, of a return. And the one in white, for example, it's the one that Schubert set as the double, yeah, the, do, uh, the doppelganger, so, um, which is in the same key as this prelude. That's what I'm trying to sort of build here. And of course, Berklin um, also painted this picture, which uh, is Isle of the Dead, which Rimsky-Korsakov, sorry, Rimsky-Korsakov, Rachmaninoff, yeah, set, set, so to speak, as a symphonic poem. So it's likely that uh, that painting he also associated with death. He was quite obsessed with death, wasn't he? Mm. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he described it as a fear not of death itself, but of what's beyond, yeah. uh, of, of basically visions of hell. You can find them in his first symphony and also, I think, in his last piece, which is the symphonic dance. Mm, very much it? so, yes. Mm. But he was told that he would, his life expectancy was 30-ish by and some doctor, or, and I don't know who it was. Mm. And I don't think he's ever left him, that feeling. And he actually died and he was 70. But for the whole of those years, he was expecting it to be the next day. So that this has obviously had a profound impact on his writing, particularly if he was afraid of what came next. Yeah, so just a few words about this prelude, which uh, I think is really mm. um, piling up these representations of grief. Yeah, it's this very dark key and uh, this descending chromatic passages and uh, various odd things as well, yes, which I think might reflect the painting in an interesting way, mm. because the painting, if you remember, yeah, has this uh, reflection yeah, of the figure and of the sky. Um, and uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the prelude, you have a lot of these uh, yeah, left and right hands sort of reflecting each other, mirroring each other, mm. sometimes even chords which are kind of almost symmetrically mm. built. So, um, I'll just say one more thing. I know that we are a bit out of time now, but I'll just say one more thing, that uh, his preludes very often and, uh, and larger scale pieces are very tightly constructed. Yeah, everything is kind of connected. Well, that piece that I've just shown, yeah, was very much using the interval of a second as kind of, you know, the, the dominant thing, the, the focus of everything. Um, and there are various other preludes like that, yeah, which would, would uh, use a third, for example, yeah, or a, or a fifth. And uh, again, this is a, a rare thing for a Russian composer to do, to be quite so Germanic in it. Yeah, even the second piano concerto is incredibly tightly constructed. And you'd think that people would actually give him some credit for it. <laughs> but you can German. see, yeah, you can see that everything is against, yeah, counts against him. That, mm. uh, you know, actually this B minor prelude, yeah, when this little embryo in, insists on expansion, one is sorry both for the piece and for the composer. 
And at the same time, yeah, saying that everything came so easy to him because it, uh, he was a performer. So he didn't actually use any intellectual effort in producing his music. Yeah, so you, you cannot win yeah, so mm. on both sides. Perhaps he didn't use a lot of effort. Perhaps he, just, he was just so naturally brilliant. Well, but I don't know. It, it, it just looks to me. to me like there is a lot of, of careful you know, work. Certainly, but yeah, yeah. he was very careful with the notation, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But he certainly wrote them very quickly. Yeah. So I think uh, I should <laughs> let you play. Okay. Um, How much time do we have? Because I don't want. Well, I don't think yeah, I can... we'll, we'll we'll do the B minor first, maybe. Okay. That's yeah. A long so one. we'll do the B minor uh, prelude, which yeah. I've just talked yeah. about, a very gloomy one. Then uh, it will be the complete opposite. Yeah, the kind of Easter bells B flat major one. Oh, uh, yeah. Then the extra bonus one uh, that Peter suggested is the, the minuet, quite a dark, sort of sinister yeah. uh, prelude, and then the D major that we discussed in, yes. uh, in detail. And they are, of course, a sequence within the Opus 23, yeah. so they, they actually link together very well. Yeah. So this is the so, B minor, yeah.
So now the B flat major, the uh, D minor, and the D major, which make a wonderful sequence from the first book, Opus 23.